welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, why not check out our website, birminghamvineyard.com. So we're going to continue our identity series, looking through the window of 1 Corinthians, and we've got to chapter 7 at the moment. And this follows on from a really good talk that Eleanor gave last week on how we treat our physical bodies and how we're invited to do something different with our bodies than the Greek and Roman world um, believed about their bodies years ago. So my topic is singleness and celibacy. And um, I don't think I've ever heard an actual sermon talked about this. Has anybody else? Has anybody else heard one at all? Oh, oh, Wouter has. Good, good. Excellent. But um, I like to think of singleness a little bit like pass the parcel. Well, this is how I thought about it in my youth. Only it's pass the parcel in reverse. I would hope and pray that the music did not stop when I had got the gift of singleness, I wanted to be sure to pass it on to somebody else. But you may be very happy with the gift that God has given you right now, whether that's singleness or marriage, but at some point it may be that you are given the gift of singleness when you just don't want it and you do want to pass it on like I did for a very long time. It may be through divorce, broken relationships, It may be from bereavement. But I'd like us to to journey a little bit together. And I'd like to use my story a little bit as how did I move from not wanting this gift and be very happy to pass it on to actually getting to 67 as a single woman and feeling very content and fulfilled. And as though God has given me a blessing, it has been a gift. And I have been free to do some things, see some things, walk with some people that I frankly wouldn't have been able to do in a different situation. So singleness, because of what we heard about our use of our bodies, also by default implies an abstinence from sexual activity. So we are being invited to think about that this morning. So I'm going to share a little bit about my story. We're going to look at the example of Jesus and what he taught. We're going to look a little bit at Paul's example and what he taught. We're going to think about how counterculture singleness and celibacy is. And it has been all through the years and ages... We're going to look at a little bit about our Western culture, about the Western Protestant church, and then a bit about how we live it out. So we're going to have a quick and speedy journey, I hope, through this topic. So my story was that as a non-Christian teenager, I had a very messy sexual relationship. It opened the door to lust and desires that frankly plagued me once I became a Christian um, just, about, just about as I was turn, to turn 20. And I would say that my 20s were tough. There were some very natural desires, but they were very unhelpful, and there was absolutely no love interest on the scene. I went to um, a social gathering, and I, I can remember coming back to a, my empty flat and thinking... Oh my goodness, this is hard. I felt really ugly, 
unlovely, unlovable, and rejected through something that had happened at that, at that do. And I can remember thinking, I've, got, I've really got to engage with God about this. I've got to tell him how wretched I feel. I know he knows, but I need to tell him, and I need to tell him he's got to say something. It was sort of a desperation moment. So I thought, I opened my Bible, and I can't quite remember whether I chose to read through a bit of the Old Testament called the Song of Solomon, or whether my Bible fell open at it. I can't remember. But it was a, speak now, God, you've got to say something type moment, an ultimatum, I suppose. And I read through chapters one, two, and three, and it didn't feel as though God had heard my desperate prayer, I have to say. And I was getting even more fed up. But I got to chapter four. And the Song of Songs, if you don't know it, know it is all a, a, about a love poem that King Solomon is supposed to have written to his uh, the love of his life. He, it's a, he's wooing this girl. So Solomon is like the bridegroom and the girl is the bride. And it doesn't seem as though she's got the same social standing as Solomon. She's a sort of simple girl. So, you know, that sort of fitted. And then I read through chapter four and got to verses 12 to the very end. And I hope we've got the, the slide for that. But it was, it was a very significant moment for me because I heard Jesus say to me, my darling bride is like a private garden, a spring that no one else can have, a fountain of my own. You're a lovely orchard bearing precious fruit and it goes on to list these fragrances and the oils and all that is good and ends with this promise of being a fountain of living water welling up and refreshing. Now, at that moment, I, I felt as though I had had a real love embrace and had been wooed by Jesus. But I can't say that that meant I had brought into singleness for the next 40 years. I hadn't. And for me, it was a case of, at that moment, Jesus met me in my need and gave me that promise. Basically, I've had to choose to live that out as the days, months, years, decades have rolled by. And it is a choice, and sometimes I've done better than other times at accepting that. And along with this sense that Jesus was my bridegroom, and I was precious and special to him and kept for him, my, my desires did not magically evaporate. And I think that's a bit of a, a thing that you think if God's going to give you the gift of singleness, he will remove some of the other things. Well, it's not my story. If it's your story, praise God. I moved through my 30s and that was tough for a different reason because virtually everybody I knew and then much younger people than I knew were being married. There were so many weddings, so many babies, so many apparently really perfect families all getting on with life and I was me. Added to this, my mother was getting more pointed about her need for grandchildren, and that was exceedingly unhelpful. But into this scenario, another invitation sort of dropped, and I was sitting with a group of friends, and we were thinking about John 12, 1, which is the story of Mary of Bethany anointing the feet of Jesus. So this is quite a lovely picture, but we were reading it in the Bible. 
And as we began to discuss and meditate about this, somebody sort of made the suggestion that, you know, this was probably Mary's dowry, that she had poured out this expensive perfume at the feet of Jesus in a once and for all sort of act, consigning herself probably um, to every marriage opportunity because she was loving, because she loved and was devoted to Jesus. And I think those, these two images, the, the, the words of um, being Jesus' darling bride and his private garden have held me steady, along with this idea of being able to give this to Jesus. Because in any relationship, any love relationship, it's probably more about giving than taking, isn't it? We... We buy into this Hollywood myth very easily that it's all about having my needs met and somebody will come along and meet them. Well, only Jesus can do that, but I have a responsibility to surrender everything to Jesus and give him everything, and that is a love relationship. That's a little bit about my story, and things have got a little bit easier as life has gone on. Um, But... That might not be your experience. So is it fair to say that the Bible gives some positive reasons and invites some of us into this journey of singleness? What does the Bible actually say? Is singleness a tragic missing out or is there something more? It's always been counter-cultural, I'd like to suggest. So in Jesus' own culture, marriage was most definitely the norm. There was a rabbinic saying, any man who has no wife is no proper man. Now, can you imagine Jesus travelling round with his mates and a bunch of women as well, and what the gossip might have been behind hands about Jesus and who he was and what his identity was? I think it would have been quite challenging to resist that. But Jesus chooses to let his identity rest in. He is the beloved of God. That is who God calls him, his beloved son. And I think Jesus also introduces a radically new kingdom perspective about family, about generations, about offspring. I have to say, I don't think I've struggled so much with the being childless as I have with the whole sex bit. But that might not be true for other people. I can understand that not having children, if if that's where you're at, and as the clock ticks past, that can be a real hurt, pain, and you have to grieve for it. But um, I would also say that Jesus introduces this other idea that although the Genesis 1.28 mandate about being fruitful and multiplying has been something that a human race has managed to achieve. We've done really well on that. Sex babies, no problem with obedience. But in comes Jesus with this new mandate and he comes along and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So the God who said be fruitful and multiply is now saying, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always, 
to the very end of the age. And I think the Genesis 1.28 mandate is now open to absolutely everybody because Jesus is with us and we can have spiritual offspring. I'm not prevented from passing on a spiritual legacy whether I'm married or single. And in fact, looking back to the promise in Isaiah 54.1, which says, more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. That has been my story as I look back over 40 odd years, actually. I think I've had the real privilege of influencing, walking alongside, learning from a whole raft of men and women, well, mainly women, And I think that this is what Jesus is inviting all of us to do, to have a spiritual legacy as well, or instead of offspring, if that's what you need to do, or as well as. So we're moving on to just consider a little bit about the context of 1 Corinthians 7, which is the passage that we're we're basing this, this on. So how was singleness and celibacy regarded in Corinth when Paul was writing this letter to these believers? Well, under Roman law, women were not even full citizens in their own right. They were expected to produce um, heirs and therefore they were married. It was so bad that if they didn't comply by the age of 20, you could be fined. So imagine that then they would have been totally ostracised. So we've already been learning together that Corinth was a bit of a dodgy city and there were plenty of dodgy sexual practices going on in that city as as well. And part of the pagan culture meant that there were, were male and female prostitutes. So as we learned last week, Greek thought conveniently separated out what you did with your body and what you did with your spiritual belief system, whereas Jesus and and Paul are trying to marry those two things and bring the body and the spirit together. And Paul addresses their thinking by um, saying that what we do with our bodies jolly well does matter, it's significant. So we considered last week that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit lives in us. We've received the Holy Spirit from God. We are not our own. We've bought at a price. And therefore, we're called to honour God with our bodies. Our bodies are going to be part of the age to come. Our bodies will be resurrected like Jesus had a resurrected body. We're not our own, bought at a price, Temple of the Holy Spirit. So then I have to ask myself, am I letting the Holy Spirit fill all of me? Or am I seeking gratification myself? That's a question I might have to ask regularly. So if God's intention is that sex occurs as a self-giving to another in a covenant relationship, it's not mine to take. And that's where pornography and masturbation can really feed the lie that it's for me and about me and my needs being met. Is the grace for times when the flesh is weak? Hallelujah. Yes, there is. Absolutely. But there are consequences and the enemy is very quick to accuse and shame 
is a thing that can dog us if we're not really careful. Sex is highly addictive. There are powerful drives and we've got to set boundaries for ourselves and we might need help from other people as well to set those boundaries. All this matters because Pippa Brown is now not her own. None of us are our own as we become united with Jesus. Am I seeking to let Jesus be my completeness and satisfaction? Mostly yes, but it's been a struggle. So just thinking about the culture in which we grow up in, having considered what the Corinthian, um, Corinthian culture was, I think Oscar Wilde, who lived at the end of the 1800s into the 19... I think he was into the 1900s, but he summed up the view of many. <laughs> he said, celibacy is the only known sexual perversion. What a cheek. But I think that is the prevailing view of the 21st century. Self-fulfillment has become a right. What I need and what my mind needs being met is, is, is key. I had a very uncomfortable encounter with a neighbour and he was asking me about my sexual appetites being met and I thought, he obviously had some expectations that something was going on here and I stumbled through talking about Jesus in a very clumsy way wishing the ground would open me up and I don't know what he made of it but finally he left and I was able to shut the front door and move on but that is out there and we it, it felt it didn't feel like this was an opportunity to talk about the hope that I had it, it felt just a very clumsy thing but faith is always going to invite us to trust that God is truly good and has the best for us and he's not holding out on anything that is for my best, your best, ultimately. And that does take faith, doesn't it? That God is not withholding what we really, really need. There's only going to be one marriage in heaven and I'm holding out for delayed gratification, personally. <laughs> So the Western Protestant Church hasn't necessarily done a fantastic job on the whole singleness and celibacy bit. The Reformation, back in the sort of 1500s, was protesting against some of the extremes of what spiritual life had become like within the Catholic Church. So the Catholic Church believed that priests should be single and therefore celibate, and there was so much abuse and dodgy stuff going on. But that meant that the Reformation came in and the, the, the needle swung completely the other way. So singleness and celibacy was regarded with quite a bit of suspicion and marriage suddenly was elevated to a very godly high state. And sort of sadly, very narrow interpretations of passages like elders can only be the husband of one wife meant that a, a single man who hadn't got a wife or a woman who hadn't got a wife could, were barred from leadership. Well, thankfully, I think we're, we're moving past that again. But very rigid interpretations like that have also made it quite difficult to be single within a Protestant church here in the West. And one of my lowest points at the age of 47 was some church leaders, they're not leaders here now, offered to pray for me for a partner. 
I was livid. Because it had a pity nuance to it. The implication was that my life was was second best at the age of 47, that I hadn't quite fulfilled my destiny, that I was on hold waiting for a partner. And even worse, I felt, well, haven't I been communicating that Jesus is my satisfaction all these years? However, I've moved on a little bit from that. And then we come to Paul um, and his advice about singleness. So there seems to have been a question that gets sent by the Corinthian church to Paul. And Paul is saying, now for the matters you wrote about, we don't know them all, but they clearly had specifically asked, it is good for a man not to marry, Paul teaches. So singleness is okay. But then in verse 8, he goes on to unpack that and says, now to the unmarried and widows, so this must include women as well, it is, sorry, but verse 8 says, to the unmarried and, wid- and widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul himself is setting himself up as I am single and I'm not burning with passion, so I'm not marrying. Well, I'd like a word with Paul about that particular bit about the burning with passion, but it's, but it's not an excuse for promiscuity or sexual indulgence in any way outside a covenant-exclusive marriage relationship. So even for the women of Corinth... It was okay they had an assured identity as citizens of heaven, even without a husband. That's where their identity lay, and that's where our identities really need to lie. And then Paul goes on through the rest of chapter 7 to explain that there are some advantages and contribution that single people can make that is not afforded to people who are married. So he he goes on to emphasise in in verses 32 and 34, they can have an undivided devotion to Jesus. There's energy to focus on God and his kingdom. There's a freedom from anxiety for a partner and children. And it's absolutely right that there should be anxiety for partner and children, a right kind of anxiety and a looking out for them. But as a single person, I am free of that. And I'm free from some of the heartaches that go with marriage and losing a partner and whatever. I've got friends who have just tasting, well, they've moved into widowhood. And I'm spared with that from that. I want to walk as well as I can with them, but that is not a grief I will have. There have been other things that have been hard, but I won't experience that actually. So I believe that Paul's principles applied to us today include in both married and single people, I'm not my own, I'm bought at a price. I belong to Jesus, my body is a temple. I'm called to purity, to honour God as I love him with all my mind and body and strength. And that's purity within marriage as well as singleness. And for single people... We're not defined by sexual fulfilment, but as being a child of God and part of the bride of Christ. 
And herein is an opportunity, I think, to be a living parable for those of us who are single now. I think God is saying, you can represent what it looks like to be content with my relationship with you. And just as marriage has a different sort of living parable parable to it that we're very familiar with about Jesus and his church and husband and wife, so singleness also has that parable. So, what are my top tips for not burning too badly? Well, I think the simple reality is we have to be really careful what we watch, read, listen to. Yeah, just rule out those things that are not going to be helpful. And it will vary from person to person. You just have to know your own triggers. I think I've been really quite sensitive and I've had to have friends who've screened things for me and said, Pippa, don't go and see that film or don't read that book. And, you know, I've had to be quite childlike in what I accept. I can't do it. It's slightly better now. I can watch slightly. In fact, I watched something um, with a friend the other night and I, it was such a relief. I was thinking, I can safely watch this. Oh, hallelujah. I think I've had to say no to some invitations if I've been particularly vulnerable. And there's a wedding of some people that I'm not that familiar with. Then I've just said no. If I know that will tap into... a a tendency to be jealous and to stir up things about my own value and need. I've I've just um, politely declined the invitation because it will not ruin the the marvellous day for the happy couple. I think we have to be quick to seek grace for times we mess up. That's okay. We are human. We're not going to get it right all the time. Invest in friends of all ages and stages. Investing with little people is great for hugs and cuddles and getting your skin hunger needs met through little people and through um, good friends too. I think being honest and really accountable to a few trusted friends is very, very helpful. And I think perhaps the key is to keep cultivating an intimacy with Jesus. So Jesus and I have had dates um, regularly. And one of the ways I can do it now is to have sort of quiet days and go on retreat. And I have to keep bearing in mind, this is not about me going with my needs, asking Jesus to meet my needs. It's about me going with a desire to tell Jesus how much I love him and to um, bring him pleasure and honour. It's an invitation to keep on anointing his feet, if you like. But I've also had some lovely other experiences as well. And um, one of these was uh, on a retreat day. It was a few years ago. And I went for a a walk outside and the dew was very, very heavy. It was an autumnal morning, quite crisp. And I just looked down at my feet and there were all these myriads of dewdrops glistening like diamonds. And I felt God was saying to me, "You, this, this is my diamond gift to you. So it, that brooch does not anywhere near do it justice because they were so sparkly and so vibrant. Now, I obviously couldn't take them home, but the, I can, I can, as I'm telling you the story, I can just remember the sight of those diamonds. And there were millions of them for me. 
But I think we have to put ourselves in the way of, um, of saying, God, I'm here, I'm available, and I am worshipping you in order to receive those moments. And sometimes they come, and, some, and, and sometimes they don't. And I suspect that's true of a marriage relationship as well, isn't it? That sometimes there are really romantic moments, and sometimes he just doesn't get it. So, just to end with, um, living it out for those of us who are single, learn contentment. God will not let us miss out ultimately, but it might feel like that sometimes. Don't compare, beware comparing with other people because we never know somebody's other full story. God, our hearts, invest time and energy in relationship with Jesus invest time and energy in close relationships with other people and pass on what you know to others of Jesus. Make those opportunities to have spiritual influence with others, whether they're younger or peers or older people, just pass on what you know because that is a spiritual legacy that's going to last. And for those of you who are married, dear lovely friends, please don't try and match make us unless you're specifically asked. And please listen how single people can usefully and helpfully be included. So I've got a couple of friends, and they really helpfully would phone me up before a social gathering and say, would you like us to pick you up and come with us? Because I tell you, it is very wearing going to every social encounter and walking into the room on your own. Now, they had to come a bit out of, their, out of their way to pick me up, but it was so helpful to do that. And that was my story, but find out what the single friends that you know might, what might really help them and serve them. And if there's somebody who happens to be modelling singleness well, well, give them a nudge and tell them. That would be very encouraging. For those of you who've got slightly older children, I'm sure you would never put pressure on them to produce children and, and, and be married themselves. I know you wouldn't ever do that. And be creative about how single people can contribute according to their gifts and calling. We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. Why not come along and visit us? We gather at three services across two sites on a Sunday and meet during the week in small groups across the city. More information on both of these can be found on our website. Thanks for listening and God bless.